Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest has just about done it all in the theater. He is, here's the long list, are you ready for this? He's a casting director, audition coach, career coach, I need that, writer and teacher who has worked with some of the greatest artists in the American theater, as well as having served as executive director of casting for Disney Theatrical Productions and senior vice president of casting and creative development for Livevent. Livevent, yes. Ooh. And here is just a small list of the shows he has had a hand in bringing to life. Let's see, uh, the original Parade, Sweet Smell of Success, one of my favorites, uh, Suzical, Kiss the Spider Woman, Phantom of the Opera, The World Goes Round, Sunset Boulevard, Candide, Showboat, Ragtime, Fosse, and so many more. And literally, we mean so many more. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as, this is just a handful of them, folks, Hal Prince, Garth Drabinsky, Susan Stroman, Oscar Eustace, Julie Taymor, Marvin Hamlish, Jason Robert Brown, and so many more. Here is Ardios award-winning casting director, Arnold Monjoli. Mar Arnold, how are you doing today? <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I was trying to follow the shows in my mind, and I was like, uh, yeah, well, oh, yeah, yeah, that one. oh, yeah, that one. Uh, that was so fun. Nobody's ever spoken that back to me. Thank you. Oh, are you, this, this resume is so impressive. Okay, Arnold, so we're going to start off really basic. For those of us who might not know what a casting director does, can you give us a simple definition? <laughs> can and I know it ain't, it, ain't, it ain't a simple job. So can anybody? Uh, I, I'm uh, the casting director is the person hired by the producer to identify the actors uh, and bring them to the director and the creative team uh, so that they can make the very best choices. Uh, we are all casting directors. We're we're hired for our taste. Uh, we are not uh, 
we're subjective. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no secret lists of actors. I mean, of course, now there's infinite uh, uh, YouTube posts and uh, social media people you can find. But but really, in terms of trained, solid, good actors who do what we do, you can't. Um, they're not hidden from any of us. So we're hired for our taste and we're hired for our standards and for what we bring to it. Uh, and we are a, a part of the process in that way. Mostly, uh, I think other people take credit for our work. And I'm not saying that with, with even a trace of bitterness. It makes perfect sense. I always say to young people in casting, uh, we, we are pre-production. And on any show, on any movie, on any Broadway show, on any production, the point is to keep pre-production expenses down. Because if you're doing a film, for example, and you hit a week of rain, you've got to keep all the actors and all the crew there. And suddenly you're spending an extra 150000 half a million dollars a day you weren't anticipating. So pre-production must be kept as low as possible. So I, I wish I had known that when I started. Uh, <laughs> but also, uh, it, it's, a strange, um, it's a strange area because we are completely done. You are done with us when you start rehearsal. And then you go into that whole journey and adventure and all the things that happen. And then you have all of the previews and the show opening and the Broadway opening night. And very often we show up and the director's kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember you because it's a lifetime away when our work was completed. Um, so so we have a very strange relationship with production, but it's uh, it's also a really wonderful relationship because we get to be the bridge between talent uh, and people we so believe in. And uh, the, the people behind the table, the directors, the, the, the people who we also believe in. Peter Stone used to say so brilliantly, auditioning is a lot of nervous people in front of a lot of nervous people. <laughs> it's you know? so true, though. It's so true. The great book writer. I mean, gosh, it's so true. Yeah. I, I always say that when you're behind the table, you're actually more nervous because the actor has five or six maybe other auditions maybe that week. I've only got one show. So I'm a little bit more nervous than, than everybody else is when I'm behind the table. Absolutely. And I, I always try to, uh, when, I, uh, when I teach, I always try to, to explain to actors, think about it. Uh, uh, you're auditioning in front of people who have borrowed maybe $80 million. I mean, I'm a person who, if I'm ever in a situation where someone has to spot me 20 bucks, I, I wake up in the middle of the night to the sound yeah. of a cash register bell. Oh, yes. I owe my friend 20 bucks. Yeah. I got to make sure I make good on that. Can you imagine Oh, having like $80 million of borrowed money and then watching people sing and trying to enjoy it? Just, oh, right? Wow. <laughs> What a room. That, Arnold, that's such a healthy way of putting it. I, and I think that relieves a lot of stress on the actor. Now, you mentioned the word taste. Um, do you think that's the defining characteristic of what separates one casting director from another? Personally, I do. Yeah. Uh, now, there's a lot of different points of views. I'm just going to Google to type in population of the earth and get the current number. Oh. which is 7.753 billion people. That's what Google says today. Oh. So, you know, what I try to point out is there's about, give or take, a thousand members of the Casting Society of America worldwide. <laughs> so I, I think that means, you know, having me with you today, people have a, a one in 753 million chance of talking to a casting director. <laughs> We are not creatures that roam the earth in, in abundance. We are fairly rare 
in what we do. So when we say our casting directors hired for their taste, I believe so. But also, in one sense, any producer has a choice of a thousand reputable first run run people. And how are they going to make that choice? They look at their body of work and they say, I really like the shows that that this person has done. Mm. Um, mm. You know, in, in terms of, of actors and the general public and the, the general public's knowledge of what we do, they don't meet many of us. No. So, kind of an interesting... It is. Like, and yet to... Unicorns. <clears throat> And to actors, you know, having been one, you know, the casting directors are like God sometimes because like you're like the gatekeeper in, you know, and it's a wild dichotomy of this sort of world of being pre-production and then this sort of like very important person to a, a, a whole group of, of sector of people, right? Um, and I, I find that sort of duality very fascinating. I love that you pointed that out because I, I, I see it quite the opposite. Um, I, I live in a way where, I'm just always channeling. I'm always trying to be receptive, grateful, ready, open, and willing to <laughs> in the world around me and why we're here. And and I see it the opposite way. And and I believe what you say is absolutely true, Kevin. That that actors do see it as unfortunately. You know, oh, yeah. this this casting director is the gatekeeper to my career, or could or could not. But but in reality, we need you because if you don't come in the room fully prepared really having worked it and now there's such a a, a vibration around of actors feeling defeated like oh it's all self tapes i don't have the energy of people watching in the room it's not live who people are fast forwarding through this who knows if they're even watching i'm i'm half hearted about it i'm only you know just going through the motions now and i'm like no 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 we need you to be at your best because we only look good if you look good right. We are only successful if you are successful. So so the person with the power in the audition room is the actor, the center of focus, always. It's never us. And, and so that's kind of wild. I, I do remember many years ago, uh, we were in final auditions for Showboat and Hal Prince was just, oh my God, what a magnificent human to have had uh, 10 years with, was just one of the greatest gifts of my life. And he... Uh, he was so fun and so funny and had such a view on the process because he had just been through it through so many changes over throughout so many years. And, and I remember um, his audition process was by the time he saw people, they had been approved by the choreographer and the music director and uh, his resident director. They had been approved by everyone. So he knew all he had to do was pick. Which one? Right. And right. sometimes the choreographer would say, this is not our best dance choice for, for that role, but I can make it work. And in, in the case of Showboat, it was Susan Stroman. So she knew she'd make it work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and they, the music director would say, we'd have to lower the key for this one section of the song, but otherwise this person is fine to do it. You know, they give Hal the information of what they could and couldn't do. And all he was doing was picking the one he liked from the final three or four. And, uh, and so his auditions were very short. You would do a few lines it's on stage in the theater. That's how he loved it because he wanted to see what the audience would see, you know. And um, he, he'd, uh, the actor would do a few lines and, and Hal would say, great, great, you're swell. You're swell. Thank you. That's terrific. Let, let's do a little bit of the song. And the actor would do maybe a verse and he'd say, swell. That's swell. You're terrific. And, and it was less than two minutes that the actor was actually in front of Hal sitting out in the house in a big empty theater. As and, it should be. <laughs> and I remember seeing all these wonderful, I mean, major, the, the top names of Broadway. Who wouldn't want to audition for Hal Prince, you know, a new Hal Prince show. And, uh, and I remember they were all very nervous and none of them were showing as well as they had showed in the various preliminary 
the steps. And I leaned over to him and I said, Hal, uh, you know, I, I just want to point out to you that these people are all really great. And I know you know that and you've seen them on stage, but but I think they get nervous because this time with you is so brief. And I think they feel like, you know, in two minutes, their entire career is going to be decided. And he listened and he really took that in and he nodded his head and he said, yes. And you know what? They're right! He <laughs> <laughs> was just, he had such a sense of humor about the insanity of this business. And he just, he just made it so fun because he oh. was so present for it, you know? Arnold, how, how did you, how did you get in to this particular line of work? Were you an actor first? <laughs> I, was, I was trying to do anything else. Great. I, I really, <laughs> I had decided that casting was just the one part of the industry that, that seems so insane to me. It's so much work. It's such thankless work. And I, I just thought, uh, you know, I graduated college and uh, yes, I, I went to NYU drama to be an actor, but I was also double majoring in theater administration. And very quickly I became the guy that other actors would come to and say, we're doing a checkoff scene. We don't really know what's going on. Would you look at it for us? Or we're doing a Shakespeare scene. Could you take a look at it before we present it in class? And I'm like, sure. And, and uh, that sort of evolved into the, the the place that I was by the time I graduated college. And I thought, okay, I think maybe being an artistic director or commercial producer, or there are all these different positions that fascinated me and were interesting. And I was taught very wisely by my teachers that if you wanted to run a theater or be a part of a theater, the most important thing you can do is work every job. You don't want to be telling that person in the box office what they need to do for your theater unless you've been in that box office working and you know what that's about. And I, I really wish there were more of that, not just in our industry, but in the world of people just understanding, you know, walk a, a mile in that person's shoes and then tell them what to do once you have an understanding of it. Um, so that's what I was doing. I was doing everything. And um, I remember uh, going for an interview with the, the late, great Betty Ray, who was the casting director of... Uh, I think it was Guiding Light. It was Guiding Light or All My Children. I think it was Guiding Light for so many years. One of the loveliest human beings you could ever meet. And uh, I was sent for that interview because I was producing the first benefit at Ensemble Studio Theater for, for their uh, uh, theater. And uh, I remember uh, Judy Morgan, who was then the development director, saying to me, there's a the great job available. Uh, the woman who cast Guiding Light is looking for an associate. You, you got to go. I recommended you. I said, OK, because I went to every interview. I never pre-decided, oh, I wouldn't do that. I, I never did that. It's amazing to me that people do that today. They're like, yeah, I wouldn't go on that job. And you're like, what's the matter with you? You need a job. <laughs> go on the interview. Yes. And, and so I went and we had the loveliest conversation. I just adored her. She seemed to like me very much. And and she said, so what do you want to do, Arnold? And I said, well, I, I've decided uh, I want to do anything but casting. And she said, yes. And you're so wonderful. And I'm just trying to figure out why you're here. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Judy Morgan recommended me to you. And I I show up for everything. I mean, I'm here. And then and then, you know, that saying life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Yes. Ah. I was I was determined to, to direct and to, to do shows and to work with actors. And uh, and it's so important to let go of our our preconceived notions like the cursed house. Here's what I want in my life. And here is how it's going to happen. Yeah. And to just say, here's what I want in my life. And, and let me just say yes to every opportunity that unfolds and see how it's revealed to me. And so what happened was uh, I, I was uh, bouncing from job to job and a lot of them were short-term projects. And uh, 
And then my friends at Hughes Moss Casting back in the day, uh, they needed an assistant. And I said, um, uh, they, they said to me, our receptionist is leaving. We need a receptionist. You're overqualified. Do you want it? And I said, oh, yes, because yes, yes energy just drives a right. career. That's how you have a career. Right, and, right. Uh, and so I, I became their receptionist and eventually an assistant and associate and started handling projects for them. Uh, Julie Hughes was then one of the few New York members of the Embryonic Casting Society of America. And being at the desk there, I became the person who had to call every casting director in New York every month about monthly meetings, show up the meetings, take the minutes. And then by the time I left Hughes Moss, every casting director in New York knew me, knew me well, and was calling me, making me offers to work with them on every project they had. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I knew, I had a life in casting. And what I discovered was all the things I loved about directing and my aspirations toward artistic directing, all of that was about my love of working with actors. And this was a way to do it. And the universe just had a better way than I did. You know, mm -hmm. that's how it happened. What is something that you learned working over at Hughes Moss that you still take with you to this day? Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know what comes to mind? I remember the first time I did a list for a role in a show. I don't even remember what it was, but I wanted to contribute a list of ideas. Barry Moss looked at it and he laughed and said, okay, you don't understand how this works. Jane Hoffman and Patti Lapone are never going to be on the same list for anything. <laughs> And I know that's you, you may not remember Jane Hoffman, but she was this wonderful, elderly, kind of fabulous battle axe character, really strong <laughs> actress. And she was probably in her late 70s, early 80s at the time. And Patty had just done Evita. Oh. And I was like, but they're both so good. You know, yes, <laughs> I could see either of them doing it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, what happened was because Hughes Moss gave me access to all of the uh, other casting directors in New York and working with them, uh, it, it very quickly became I was able to take the best of how everyone did it. So by the time I was casting Showboat, I had a system that was set up that just took the best of every office, the things I perceived to be, oh, that's a more efficient way to do that, or, oh, that's a more creative way to do that, or that makes more opportunities for more actors. And I developed my own systems, which were totally stolen from the greatest casting directors of the era. I mean, it was Hughes Moss, Meg Simon, Johnson Liff, uh, the beloved Mary Cahoon, just incredible titans of the industry, of a, a relatively new industry at the time, by the way. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, because before casting offices, you know, I think we and maybe some younger listeners would be surprised to know this, but how was casting done before there were these big and we're talking the casting offices really came about late 70s, 80s. You know, we know Joanna Merlin, of course, she was one of the first guests we had ages ago, um, but really she was one of the first kind of like, but, she, you know, she worked for Hal. I mean, so I'm curious if you could explain just a little history lesson on sort of the casting. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, you know back in the day, uh, there was actors would make the rounds as it was called and they would just walk from producer's office to producer's office later producers started to have somebody and the most notable was shirley rich of course who was really the first broadway casting director she did like like uh, south pacific uh, uh for josh logan and, and uh, uh the early shows but um she worked at a little typewriter table in the producer's office and uh mostly producers just had their 
secretary. There wasn't a specific casting director. And the actors would make the rounds. They would just knock on the door of the producer's office and they would show up, you know, very well dressed and, and looking, you know, very excited. And very often they'd sit in the waiting room all day and the secretary would say, I'm sorry, he's not going to be able to see you today. And it was usually a he. And the um, uh, the actor would leave and come back the next day. And eventually, after waiting in the office for days or for hours or days and hours, the producer would be like, yeah, 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 all right, fine, I have five minutes. Uh, or, oh, my goodness, so-and-so is sick tonight. They need somebody over at the theater. And the uh, actor would get to go into the producer's office and perform a little bit right there in the office. Maybe the producer would hand them some sides and they'd read that. And the producer would say, great, you can do it. I want you to go down to the stage door and see Manny over at the Broadhurst Theater and tell him I sent you and they'll put you in the costume and and you'll, you'll rehearse and you'll go on. And that's how it happened. And in fact, um, uh, there's a, a, a sort of, I think it's known to equity members, but little known outside of the equity membership. There's something called the Conrad Canson Memorial Shoe Fund. And Conrad Kansen was an actor many years ago who, uh, when he died, he had a small fortune that he left to Actors' Equity. And uh, he left it with the intention that there would be enough, it would be an endowment and there would be enough money off of the interest that once a year, every actor, every member of Actors' Equity would be given a new pair of shoes so that no actor would ever cross their legs in a producer's office and have the producer see holes in the bottom of their shoes from walking through the streets, going from office to office, making the rounds. And I, I think now the endowment is such that every equity member gets, I think it's 20 bucks a year from the <clears throat> Conrad Kenson Memorial Shoe Fund. But that's how much a part of things that was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then it evolved as it got bigger and there became more actors and more training programs, training out more actors. And it was something that the producer's office couldn't handle. So they started hiring someone to be casting. I, I don't know if Joanna talked to you about the way she became a casting director and Hal's offer to her. Yes, but that was many. E I think she was a guest number eight or nine for us. So if you would <laughs> love to re retell the anecdote, we would love it. I would love to because it's one of my favorite stories. And I, I, I teach uh, uh, I teach a class at NYU once a week. I've been doing it for well, 20 years now. Mm -hmm. And um, I require uh, required reading is Joanna's book, Auditioning. And uh, I tell them about Joanna. And um, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm halfway through writing an audition book of my own. And uh, I, I told Joanna about it a while ago. And I said, I figure, you know, Michael Shirtlifts was the big book in the 80s. And then your book came out and, and she interviewed me for the book and I'm in it as well. But I said, your book came out in the 2000s and I feel like it's the 2020s and and it's time for a new book. And I, I, I want to write it. And Joanna, being the angel that she is, she placed her palms on my shoulders and she said, Arnold, you have my blessing. Oh, she's just such she's an the angel. Best. But the story I tell is that, um, you know, she's both a successful actress, has won many awards, a successful casting director, has won many awards. And uh, she um, she was in the original cast of Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, she was playing Zeidel. And at the time, Fiddler became the longest running show in Broadway history. And nobody expected it to run that long. And so... Uh, she was getting married and wanted to have a family. So she went to Hal, who people may not remember exactly, but Jerome Robbins was the director of Fiddler. Hal was the producer. Uh, so she went to Hal as the producer and said, Hal, I, I need to leave the show. It's going on for years. This was fairly unheard of in those days. She said, and I, I want to get married. and I'm getting married and I want to start a family. And I, I just can't do this eight times a week. And Hal said, nope, Joanna, I'm sorry. You're too good. Can't let you go. And, uh, she said, 
if I could point you to someone who is just as good as I am or better, would you let me out of my contract? And how who could never resist a challenge of any kind. It was one of the most wonderful qualities about him. He said, you're on. And she said, okay, audition my understudy. And he was a little confused by that and said, okay. So he auditioned the understudy who was one of the girls playing uh, Bielko or Sprintz, the, the two little girls who don't have many, they're not in Matchmaker, you know. And um, and he did. And that young lady turned out to be very talented, a young lady by the name of Bette Midler. And Hal did indeed hire her and uh, let Joanna go. And then a few years later, Hal called up Joanna as he was getting into the, you know, Prince Sondheim collaboration of things, uh, the company to Pacific Overtures, et cetera. And he called her up and she had already had uh, one or two kids at that point. And he said, uh, Joanna, I'm creating a new position in my office and I want it to be you. And she said, what is it? And he said, I'm creating the position of a casting director. And she said, Hal, I know nothing about that. I, I can't possibly do that job for you. And he said, no, I think you're going to be way better at it than you realize. And so ain't that the kid. truth? Ain't that the, the truth? truth? And that was basically, you know, one of the first positions of, of, I mean, like an official position as, you know, the casting office. I mean, as someone who's a casting director, I mean, yes. really, really kind of paved the way. I mean, it's. Yeah, as I say, Shirley Rich was before her. But then Joanna was sort of the next big name in our history as casting directors. Yeah. And and to our listeners, if you've not seen a documentary called Casting By, um, I, it's a fascinating, fascinating documentary about the wonderful job that people like Arnold and, and Joanna do and do it so brilliantly and so well. So, Arnold, let's walk a little bit through your process. So you're you're. You've have more experience now. Uh, let's say I come to you and I say we're doing My Fair Lady on Broadway. How do you begin creating a list of possible actors for me, the director or me, the producer to see? So the first thing I do is I look at the script. If it's something like My Fair Lady that I know very well, doesn't matter. I go back and I look at it again. Uh, the second thing I do is I ask the director for some time which they used to be so happy to give. And now it's like, oh, I don't have any time. And it's like, yeah, nobody has any time. But I want I want to be your eyes and ears and hands and perspective on this to bring you the people that are going to tell the story the way you want to tell it. And I uh, begin by that conversation, asking them to tell me about each character. I say, don't don't not about what's written, but in the way you're telling the story in your production, what is who is this person? What's special about them? Uh, what what makes them tick? What's their prime motivation? What's surprising about them? And I just have my hand on my pen on my pad and I am writing down every word out of their mouth. Um, and then when we get through that process from that, I create a very specific character breakdown. And, you know, it's funny because uh, most character breakdowns you see for classic shows like that, uh, the casting offices, especially the offices that are maybe too large nowadays to give the attention that, that directors and producers would ideally like. Uh, but uh, the, the office will, will put out a breakdown that says, my fair lady, all roles. What is that? <laughs> what where how is that going to bring to this director and this producer the thing that they want to do that's unique that's special that's going to run forever so uh i don't do that i create a breakdown out of what i've read in the script superseded by the director's vision of each character um i will ask challenging questions uh i always ask and always have asked um 
are you open to people of color in this role? Um, about every single role, because it's interesting, mostly, and I'm talking for years, for decades, mostly directors have said yes. Um, sometimes they say no, but they're, it's a thoughtful no. It's a, this role does this and is, is a, perceived by the audience to be very negative. And I wouldn't want that reflected on a person of color the way they're telling the story. Um, but mostly it's, a, it, it's either a, a thoughtful or a newly enlightened yes is what it's been. Certainly Broadway in the last two years, uh, that's shifted a bit. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sad to say I mostly get sort of an obsequious yes or a pandering yes, but um, rather than the thoughtful yeses and nos I, I used to get. Uh, and then... Uh, I'll ask them other challenging questions like, are you open to people with disabilities? Are you open to uh, people who use wheelchairs? Are you open to people with blind or uh, deaf uh, uh, qualities for these roles? And I, I won't ask that in a way that would endanger the, the actor themselves, but in roles where it really is possible. And we can have intelligent, thoughtful uh, discussions about that. And... It's fascinating. I actually have one of the awards behind me uh, is um, the Media Access Award, uh, which is given each year to uh, one key person in every area of the industry. And uh, uh, it's the, the one for casting is uh, given for casting based on ability rather than disability. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that award. Uh, and that was the year I, I uh, brought Jennifer Kumiyama, who's just one of the most extraordinary talents and you're about to see her in a major role in a big film, which just makes my heart sing. But uh, when we did the original Aladdin at the Hyperion Theater in L.A., um, Jennifer showed up and uh, she's a quadriplegic, so she doesn't have physical use of her arms or her legs. But she's such a bright, shining light. And I brought her through every step of the process. And it just became impossible not to cast her because she was so talented. Uh, it was hugely complicated because when the show ran at the Hyperion, it did something like 15 performances a week. So it was like, well... If we create a role for a person who uses a wheelchair, do we have to find another person that talented who will work in Los Angeles and has housing and for that money and can sing that well, etc.? So uh, we created the role in a way that the performances that she did not do because it was double cast. No actor did all fifteen performances. Uh, if we created the role in that way, the performances that she's not on, uh, the, that role would just fade away and not be covered or changed. Uh, she was just extraordinary. She was such a gift to that production. She's, she's working with Congress people now and affecting changes and all of these wonderful things have happened because enough people see the light and say yes. I mean, see the light like, ooh. I mean, see the light, like the light that this actor shines and communicates with in a way that lifts up everybody on the stage. So having had those experience, I love asking those questions because I, I don't think anyone involved in, is like a bad person but i think that there are things people don't think about you know mm -hmm. as as one of the the uh, actresses who spoke at the media access awards when i received that award said uh you know what happens when you see someone in a wheelchair when you're a little kid your parents says don't look don't stare that's not polite don't look and we're told <laughs> don't look don't look so we grow up sort of not seeing something that is really valuable there and that's why when you said earlier that, you know, oh, the casting director gets to play God, it's like, no, the casting director 
gets to be like the people at the Integral Yoga Student, uh, uh, Integral Yoga Institute on 13th Street, when they, you call there and they answer the phone, Integral Yoga, how may I be of service? Mm. You know, that's that's really what we do of service to, to actors and to society and to productions and to telling stories, which is what we're all in this business to do. And how wonderful when you can tell stories in new and meaningful ways. Uh, years ago, I remember I directed a, 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 one of Teresa Rebeck's very early plays. It was called Does This Woman Have a Name? And um, it was about. Uh, two friends, uh, two two women. One was a lawyer and one was a, no, sorry. One was a writer and one was an actress. And the writer's boyfriend was a lawyer. And the uh, two women set up a phone sex business. That's how long ago this play was, right? And uh, uh, the, uh, the real story, it's a one-act play, and the real story is about the struggle between the male lawyer and the female writer in their relationship because she becomes more successful than he does. Um, and what that's all about and uh, all of the various tones of morality and such. And I said to Teresa, uh, here's the actress I want for the uh, to, to play the the actress, because uh, the way they did it is the writer wrote the scripts and the actress was on the phone with all these fantasy scenarios with men taking them through these phone sex scenarios. And I chose to cast a, a really talented actress who happened to be very physically large to create for the audience the imagery of how it really is all fantasy and the things she was saying to these men, well, they weren't seeing her. And it was such an empowering choice. And Teresa said to me, I didn't, I didn't see that in any way. And I wasn't thrilled when you brought it up, but this is the play I was trying to write. It's fantastic. So, so casting can make a difference that way, you know, in, in, helping the audience to understand nuances of the story that aren't there. So in terms of back to your original question, how I begin my process, I begin my process by getting really clear and zeroed in on the story that these creative people with this production are trying to tell. And then I find the people who can best tell that story. And I try to surprise them also. When they say very specifically, this is a uh, young, handsome, all-American guy who's like blonde-haired, blue-eyed, super privileged, comes from money. And I say to them, yes, and you'll see those people. You will also see a short, funny-looking, red-headed guy with a really big nose who is not that at all, but is one of the sexiest, most charming young men you will ever see. And the director will cast them. The director will very often go with the contrast to their idea because they're seeing things physically and describing that. And I'm hearing their, the, the soul they're trying to find. And that comes in different packages. And that's always exciting. What happens to you? Uh, and maybe this has not happened, but you go to a director and you say, what, what are you thinking of for Eliza Doolittle? And the guy goes, I don't know. She's a soprano. And they and they don't give you anything or that time or, or time doesn't allow for a conversation so you said that does happen i'm sorry i cut you off you said that does happen that, that does happen yeah i, re I remember a, a production where uh there was a role we uh we just could not find and uh i, I said to the director I, I, these are all famous people names but i don't want to throw them around but no no, no. Uh, I, I said to the director what do you see in this character and she said red hair i said okay anything else and she said no all i see is red hair curly red hair a lot of it 
and we ended up casting Natasha Diaz, who does not have curly red hair. <laughs> uh, but but I understood. I thought, okay, so what does that mean? Uh, you know, what I knew about this director and her life and and her uh, um, how she sees women. Wasn't that nicely yeah. phrased? Uh, yes, and, that was lovely. Uh, that was lovely. And, and, you know, I thought, okay, so so there's something compelling. There's something attractive. There's something different than herself. And I, I sort of went down that road of what what was the subtext of what the director was saying, the way the actor needs to go into the subtext of what the line is, how it's written. And what happens when you you come up with a list and you approach an agent and you say, I want to see your client and actually let me rephrase the question if i can what project did you find the hardest to cast and i know there i know that every show has its own difficulties but what was one either because of the subject material or uh the people maybe associated with it that yeah. made it hard for you to get people into the room <laughs> so i i i <laughs> become kind of a specialty that that's there isn't one. There's a million of those. That's what I do. Um, I, no one ever has hired me to cast the Music Man. No one ever has hired me to cast Gigi. Uh, if they did, they'd see some really interesting new versions of ways to tell that story. Good. But I I don't really do conventional work. Uh, and for example, one of the projects I'm working on right now uh, is uh, a, a, a new theater piece, uh, and it requires actors who are non-union bilingual english and spanish and blind all of those things wow so the first thing you do is you try to open up all the doors and you say okay how much rehearsal if, if they're going to pennsylvania to this theater to do this and you want people to be physically present and you're going to bring them in and you're going to house them during rehearsal and during performances. Then the first two uh, weeks of table read work that you're doing in the rehearsal process, could that be done on Zoom? And can we open this up to everyone in the country instead of, I mean, outside of the country, you get into immigration and citizenship issues and green cards and being able to pay them, et cetera. But uh, it, can we open it up to the entire country instead of just New York City? And it becomes, uh, you know, you, you awaken the director to possibilities where then they'll say, yes, it doesn't matter to me if I bring them in from New York City or if I bring them in from somewhere else. Everybody's got to be in Pennsylvania. And the first two weeks is table read. They can totally do that on Zoom. In fact, we're planning on doing a good chunk of that on Zoom great so it can work so uh, you open up as many doors as possible so you can make as far a reach as possible uh, but those are the kind of shows i get uh to answer your question more directly i suppose uh the one that came to mind when you said that was uh tony kushner's homebody cobble which i did for uh trinity rep uh where oscar eustace was the artistic director for so many years uh and it was so fun when oscar uh, got the artistic directorship of the public theater uh just uh just absolutely wonderful because he was frustrated being in Rhode Island and doing this amazing work and creating things like Angels in America and shepherding those projects into existence. Yes. And I used to just smile at him and pat him on the back. And I said, it'll happen. Mm -hmm. Give the world time to catch up with Oscar Eustace. It'll happen. And it did. And it was yeah. just so marvelous. Uh, so uh, I'm thinking of a bunch of stories I can't tell. Uh, you can, we, you know what? We love fake names. We love fake shows. <laughs> if, 
<laughs> we had to do a, a what is it, a dark web version of this podcast. Yes, yes, uh, yes. The off the record, yes. We've, we've had that a lot. <laughs> yes, the off the but, records, yes. But the show, you know, what happened with Homebody Cobble is um, it, it was the, the show that I, I believe it was the one that Oscar worked with Tony on after bringing Angels in America into existence and um, uh, or maybe continued working on at that point. But I was doing all the casting for Trinity Rep and Trinity Repertory Company, of course, has a company. So there are resident actors there who work. And then there are some things they don't have in their company. And I became the person who was hired to find the the people for the shows that they didn't already have in their company. Mm -hmm. So they hired me uh, to cast Homedy Cobble to cast all of the Afghani roles because they didn't have any Middle Eastern company members to do those roles. And it was uh, my first show after 9-11 happened. Oof in 2001 Ooh, and yeah. uh we can always find the people i mean as i say you th those skills get honed after you know show after show after show of impossible unimaginable demands and uh and and you know walt disney himself actually uh, said many years ago it's kind of fun to do the impossible <laughs> And yes. I, I used to have that. I used to have that on my door of my office because I I, I loved it so much, and it really is fun, you know. But uh, what happened then is, uh, if you remember, that the emotional pulse of the city, the country, the world, our community was extremely vulnerable and raw. And I was casting uh, these Middle Eastern actors who would come in and do this very sensitive and very intense material. And uh, they would do these scenes where they would break down because that's what the character was doing, except they weren't coming back from it. And I'd see that something had crossed over and this was no longer acting. And I'd gently get up from the table and come around to them. And if they were on there, I, I remember one woman, I, I remember the actress, she was on the floor on her knees having this breakdown. And I gently went to her and I reached out my hands to her and she placed her hands in mine. And I said, are you okay? And she said, yes, my father is flying to Afghanistan later this week to reset up the banking system to try to build the country again. And this hits so deeply and personally. And every audition was like that. I mean, these people were connecting to things that were so deep in them and, and that's one of the extraordinary things, I, I think, not just about being a casting director, but about the, the joy and the privilege of getting to work in this industry as we do is we get to see life from all sides. We get perspectives that, that we don't get in the news or the people we talk to day to day. We hear things from, from uh, uh, cultures and ideas and perspectives and people whose lives are so different than our own in so many ways. And, uh, you know, whether that's, it used to be, I, I'd love to hear from older people. And now it's, I love to hear from younger people. I, I want to hear from people different than myself. I want to experience that. I want to interact with that. And this was one of the most profound uh, uh, experiences I, I'd ever had because uh, it was just something so... Uh, healing and uh, touching to our most vulnerable selves for, for me and for the actors in this tiny little audition room I had in my office. And um, it was, it was just amazing. And then bringing Oscar into that and having him experience this play he had worked on with Tony for years in a new way and, and the humanity of how it was resonating with our culture at that particular moment in history. Those are the things that are 
I don't know if hard is fair to say, but but challenging and requiring a risk and and embracing not only that idea and this new way of thinking and how art can be elevated to a place of art imitates life, imitates art, imitates life, imitates art. You know, it's not just that, but also the humanity of two people in a room. And again, I go back to that idea you introduced, Kevin, of like, wow, to actors, it's like casting director is God. It's like, no, no. At, at, at my best, I'm a wounded angel. But um, <laughs> I, I, do, uh, I do what I can to to protect and preserve the humanity of of the actor and their vulnerability in that space and uh, and sometimes you know that I, I go home and I, I bring those emotions with me to a place where i need to okay a little bit of meditation a little bit of prayer a little bit of quiet a little bit of uh you know finding hope and being able to get up the next day and do it again okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yes, it's so personal what we do. It really is. If you're if if you're doing it right, I mean, if it's if you're really honoring the art, um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit, and because it's going to change the mood a little bit. But tell us a little bit about live event and your experience. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he whose name shall not be spoken. I almost oh, said the name too. I was I like, I know, I know you said. I was it. like, in Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Actually, you know, it's funny you say that because uh, uh, I did sue him because uh, uh, on Suzatska, he owed me, uh, I think it was $15,000. And then my contract for Paradise Square, which he blatantly violated, uh, he um, owed me, I think, $35,000. Uh, and, you know, for an independent casting office. Uh, oh, taking that yes. hit of $50,000. Really harmful because it means that you know, I'm not able to treat my very highly valued employees yes. as well as I want to because the company is coming up short because of one man's evil while he's sitting at a five-star hotel ordering a plates of shrimp and his actors yeah. are suffering. You know, it, it's, and, and you know, I, I worked with them for 35 years. So uh, I remember at one of the original readings of Suzatska, I looked around the room and I thought to myself, oh my God, with the exception of his children, I think I've known this man longer than anybody in this room, including his current wife. And, uh, and you know, he came out of prison with this big, oh, I, I see a rabbi every week and I've reformed and, and I'm here now. I'm going to make amends and I'm going to do this wonderful show and be extraordinary to everybody and so fair. And I believe these things. And I, I you know, my, my 
optimism, my, my grateful, ready, open, willing optimism uh, sometimes makes me a little gullible on things like that. I, I believed him and yeah. it was all lies. And, uh, you know, he was out to harm as many people as possible. It was a kind of toxicity that was it's almost like, you know, when when toxins are put into products and then they're incinerated in trash, it becomes a super toxin. Yes. It's like a super toxin version. And um, it was just uh, really terrible for so many people the man inflicted so much harm uh in its heyday however i was just gonna ask like was it always like that like when, when you when you first started or however you first started did was it like that you know, he curious. was always like that but okay. let's not talk about him yeah uh he uh the the shows the quality of the shows uh that adventure was extraordinary that was uh you know it's hard to describe there are, are so many uh, magnificent moments and and great arcs of of creativity that uh, I, I got to enjoy and be a part of in that era. Uh, what was the know, first show? Well, I started working with Live End before I was hired to actually physically be there. Whatever I was, executive vice president of casting and creative development, or whatever title it worked up to, uh, I, I was working independently and. Uh, what had happened was I was working for Johnson Liff. Uh, Tara Rubin was on her first maternity leave and job. they asked me to come and to work while Tara was on leave. So I went in and among the shows that fell to me in that configuration were uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And uh, I brought in Donny Osmond and that was quite a, 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 a personal achievement because uh what had happened was the agent Donnie was working with at the time, uh, I had presented this idea and the agent said, well, I'll talk to him and I'll get back to you. And you could hear him on a prehistoric cell phone, his convertible on the highway in Los Angeles. And I pursued it and I went after him and he kept not getting back to me. And finally I uh, approached him and I said, the audition is two days from now. And you haven't given me a definitive answer. He said, yeah, he's not going to be interested. And I said, I don't believe you. And the agent said, what? And I said, I don't believe you. He's not doing anything else right now. This is a great role that in many ways was written for him. Mm -hmm. It is an ideal move for his career. And I don't believe you've actually talked to him, but we've been having conversations for six weeks. So I think you have a responsibility to your client to bring it to him. And if you will do that for me, I will arrange for a plane ticket and I will get him on a plane in 24 hours and get him on stage at that theater to audition for this creative team. And the agent called back and said, he'll do it. And I said, great. And we had all major celebrities that day for that role because it was meant to be a star vehicle. And Donnie uh, was just remarkable and uh, such an incredible human being. Also such a lovely, lovely human being and uh, one of the kindest, most generous souls. And uh, that that happened. The person who shall not be named was so thrilled to learn that I was not a permanent employee of Johnson Liff and that I was freelance and independent that um, very shortly after that uh, showboat was brought to me to work on the Halpern showboat. And I was like, yes. And that- Tiny cast. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 71. 
including uh, I remember I remember uh, Jeff Johnson years ago, uh, God rest his soul, said to me uh, when it came time for the Artios Awards, that's that's one of those is my Artios for showboat. Um, uh, when it came time to vote, Jeff told me that Andy Zerman in his office said to him uh, because the nominees were their shows and mine. And Andy uh, came into his office and said, Jeff, I'm voting for showboat. I don't care if I'm voting against ourselves. 71 people, children, children of color, acrobats, low bass baritones who go to an F, high sopranos, mixed race, light skinned black woman who can play Julie. I am voting for showboat. <laughs> Uh, it's it was, true. It was like, so much fun. Insane was, that you had to cast all that. Unbelievable. Yeah, and the thing is, when you have people like Hal Prince and Susan Stroman at the helm, it's such a joyous process because yeah. you know you're working with people who who share the goal of telling this story in the most magnificent way. And harkening uh, uh, back to talking about Joanna Merlin, um, you know what had happened was in the process we were in the process of auditions, again, I was still independent at this point, uh, hired separately. Uh, it, it came to me and there was no internet then. I mean, there, there kind of was, but but people didn't have personal computers or phones or anything like today. I, I remember it came to me and I don't know how, but my own knowledge of theater history and of what had happened with the movie Showboat and, and Lena Horne auditioning and them hiring Ava Gardner from the MGM studios and, and using Lena Horne's uh, skin tone to do the makeup for Ava Gardner and all the history of that. It was somewhere in the back of my mind with the rest of the history of, of American theater. And it just sort of popped in somehow. And it occurred to me that having this role of Julie played by a white woman would not be something that would be okay. This was before much of this was talked about at all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I called Joanna up and I told her about it. And I said, Joanna, Hal Prince is going to make a terrible mistake and I don't know what to do. I have to tell him. And she listened to me explain about my, my feeling that there was a need to explain to him that the role of Julie needed to be played by a black woman and that would be important. And Joanna, I could hear her smile through the telephone because that's how she is. And she said, Arnold, Hal is a very reasonable person. Call him up and tell him. He will say yes. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to call up Hal Prince and talk to him like just Arnold Hal. Right. Um, and so I hung up the phone and I called up Hal Prince and I was like, Gold, I don't really want to tell you what to do because you have 21 Tonys and I have none. Uh, I work in an ineligible category of the industry. <laughs> uh, but but, um, you know, I don't know if you know, I assume you do about Lena Horne and Ava Gardner in the casting of Showboat. And I just feel like this role needs to be played by a black woman who is light skinned enough that it's believable that she is headlining up and down the Mississippi River with her picture everywhere in the 1800s and no one ever suspects that she's black. Right. It's, it's a plot I, Yeah. I think it has to be a, a black woman. And slight pause, very short. Arnold, of course, you're right. Go find her. Ah! <laughs> Go find her? Where? How? Uh, so uh, Lynette McKee originated the role, mm -hmm. and then uh, so many women, uh, 
beautiful, fabulous Terry Burrell, who I just adore. Oh. Uh, Marilyn McCoo uh, uh, opened the Chicago company. And um, uh, yeah, there, there's when we did that audition for for that company, uh, at that point, I was working in house. So I was in Toronto and Hal was flown up for the audition for the three Julie candidates. And one was Terry and uh, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, one was Marilyn McCoo and one was another woman, uh, not Terry, but another woman who was wildly talented, totally could play this role and just an amazing force of nature. And uh, Hal said, uh, after seeing those two women, either one can do it. And he said to the producer, uh, here's what I would do. What I would do is I would take this young woman who's not known at all and I would have her open the Chicago company and I would make her a huge star because that would happen. So that's what I would do. But I understand you're the producer and you have to make decisions for the financial well-being of the show. And Marilyn was fantastic. And again, also such a lovely human being. One of the few stars I ever cast who actually sent me a Christmas card every year. Oh. Uh, just lovely person. And um, she, uh, he said, you know, Marilyn's fantastic. And if as a producing decision, you want to go that way, that's a perfectly valid and legitimate and wonderful way to go. Also, we have a plethora of riches here. But what I would do is take the unknown and make her a big star. But whatever you want to do is OK. And of course, the producer, being who he was, went with the name. And again, I would not ever say a word against Marilyn McCoo. She's phenomenally talented and just a, a lovely member of our community. And I adore her. But... Marilyn starred in Chicago and it com uh, in Showboat in the city of Chicago. It completely revived and shined light on her career. She was wonderful. And the other woman became a welfare mom. What a world. What a what, broken, what a... broken heart for every bulb on Broadway. Is that right. what they say? Yeah. 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 They, they, they do. They do indeed. Wild. Uh, mm. Now. So Showboat, like you said, had what? 71, 73 people in it. 71 people and it wasn't just broadway right you had tours going out as oh, well yeah. we had five companies simultaneously <clears throat> five. So, five. Oh my god yeah no. i i used to say that uh with the shows we uh, that i was in charge of showboat ragtime fossey uh um uh what else was there sunset boulevard candide fan of the opera uh when with all of those shows happening and the number of contracts that I was responsible for over 700 contracts any day of the year and making sure those people were cast. And that meant that if every actor signed a one-year contract and committed and kept that one-year contract in the best of circumstances, which of course it never was, but if everyone did, every singer, single day of the calendar year I had two replacements to do on my desk if everything was going smoothly. So if I came back from a three-day weekend, then that was, I had to replace eight people that morning if everything was going really well, uh, which it never was. So it was usually 15 people a day. Uh, and it was, it was awesome. It was awesome fun because it was opportunities for actors. It yes. was yes. Yeah. actors who might not have gotten a chance uh, getting to do such great things and, and seeing how, you know, for all of us in, in creative fields, just, just a little leg up 
just mm-hmm. that to, to put out our hands and let somebody step there to get to the limb of the tree so they can climb it. Um, it felt like doing that every day for for such wonderful, talented people. And and that's still what it is for me. You know, I'm still like, OK, let's let's create this opportunity. Let's find let's find the person who is meant to to play the role. Let's find the actor who has the the chutzpah and the gumption and the passion and shows up for their life in a way that they're going to walk in the room and claim that role. Yeah. It's, it's just that's the thrill of it, you know. It must be fun to, you know, if you're not going through an agent, but the, the off chance when you get to talk to the actor directly and give them that job and, and the excitement that they have, you know, that 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 unbridled joy of like, oh we got God. a gig. It's not, a, you know, it's not even the rest of your career, but this one job is is, yes. is everything, you know, and that's that joy. It must be real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It must be wonderful. Yeah, I was incredibly such an open spirit, too. So mm-hmm. you, you really you. respond to that. No, I think that's we need more people like you in the industry. And Thank speaking you. I of mean, that, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Aaron, please. I was going to say that the the prime example of that for me was casting Fosse because yeah. uh, uh, Chet Walker created Fosse and is now in hospice care, which. Oh, I didn't realize uh, that. Oh. Yeah, which breaks my heart. What an amazing human being and, oh. and uh, a man who not only kept Fosse's legacy alive in so many ways uh, when no one else was doing it, but uh, actually. Um, affected gave us our best dancers of the last three decades uh yes. uh through his training and and uh i feel like i could say a little bit about how that project came about please yes kind please. Of fascinating you ah. know um uh chet walker was uh bob fossey's dance captain right. on dancing so fossey taught chet how to teach it because as the the dance captain he needed to teach the people who were going in or the people who were going on for a role they they weren't yet ready to go on for uh and and so bossy taught chet how to teach bossy and uh there's a lot of politics out in that world that i don't want to get into but uh after Fosse died, everybody was kind of in shock because if you remember we were in the throes of the aids crisis and uh i remember uh Barry Moss uh, trying to compose a condolence note to Bob's daughter, Nicole, and was struggling so much sitting at his desk. And he shook his head inside at one point and he said, how's this sound? Dear Nicole, we are so saddened to learn of your father's passing. Between him and Michael Bennett, one cannot help feeling that there's only Tommy Toon left. Uh, because that was the pulse of things in that time. Yeah. So after a few years had passed, because we lost our whole next generation of choreographers from yes. people don't realize. Composers and writers and yeah. yeah. A whole lot of people, our industry was sort of uh, stopped momentarily in the way that, that Stalin stopped Russian drama. I mean, they got all the way to Chekhov, arguably the, the, the most masterful modern playwright and then the censorship came in and it all stopped. Mm-hmm. And it put a big pause in a development that with Stanislavski and Michael Chekhov and Anton Chekhov was going somewhere so amazing, it stopped. And the same thing happened to us in, in musical theater, in American musicals with the AIDS crisis. It just stopped everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it had to reform. And somewhere in there, obviously Fosse did not die of AIDS, but, uh, but somewhere in there, uh, maybe a year or two had passed and Chet had this idea since he was sitting there with this gift of how to teach it and no one to give it to. So they brought together in a room, Gwen Verdon, 
uh, Sam Cohen at ICM, uh, Bob, I think I think he was Bob's agent at the time, but was very involved there. Uh, uh, Cy Coleman, people who had worked with Bob on his musicals and all the key players, maybe nine or 10 people. And Chet had taught a group of dancers about five numbers that he knew well from, I don't know, maybe it was Hey Big Spender and, and uh, the, the Fugue and a few other things and um, presented them in a rehearsal room he rented and said, we don't know what this is. We don't know what we're doing. We just wanted to do something and show it to you. And everyone was in tears by the end of it because, of course, it was work they thought they'd never see again. Right. And they all begged him to continue. So he started teaching classes in this particular style of dance. And uh, uh, I think he offered them for free twice a week to any dancer who wanted to come and learn it. Mm -hmm. And that's what evolved into the show. And uh, for me, the extraordinary thing was in that era, there was no email, there was only telephone. And in that era, we didn't have um, agencies that represented dancers. Dancers were called gypsies at the time because they just went from show to show and traveled around wherever the job was. And they were not agent represented. So you would either have an open call or you would have to contact the dancer directly. So over the course of all these developments and workshops that created the show Fosse, um, over the course of that, it, it was an amazing thing. I got to talk to every major dancer in New York extensively. I'd be in my office every night until 10 or 11 p.m. and on the phone with all of them with these extensive instructions for auditions, all black Fosse always wanted to see his dancers' bodies silhouetted in all black, black leotards, black tights, no adornments. It's not makeup, but it's not no makeup. And every female dancer I talked to would say over the phone, mm. they knew exactly what that meant. I didn't, but they did. And I was able to give them all of the information for them to come in and knock it out of the park. I'd also tell them um, it was a trick of Bob Fosse's to get his dancers hired that what he would do is make them go out before they sang, take a break and dress up. He wanted his dancers to present like singers. He never let them come for the singing part of the audition in their sweaty tights. They had to go dress up, primp up, fix their hair and come in looking even better than the singers looked. So they would be perceived by the music director and the creative team as a valid candidate, as a singer. They were all of these tricks. And I gave them to every dancer in New York. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of phone conversations and it was wonderful because dancers are such amazing creatures and so appreciative of anybody who's willing to sort of help them in this very confusing process. Uh, and it was amazing. It was so hands-on and, and the exchanges that happened, uh, just a, a, a remarkable process to put that cast together. And then of course, the day it opened in Toronto, when it finally got to opening, uh, uh, the whole scandal with that company was coming down. Mm. And I was with the producer at the opening night party. And the next morning I arrived at my office, I opened the door of the building and there were two men with machine guns standing in the lobby. And I froze. And they were very stoic, you know, like the palace guards in Britain. And I was like, uh, excuse me, I work here. And the guy nodded and he said, okay. And I said, is it safe to go in this building right now? And he said, 
It should be. And I said, it should be. You're holding a machine gun. This is an office bill. What are, what, what's happening? And he's going on. Can't say. And I was like, I work on the third floor. Is it, is it safe for me to go to the third floor? And he said, yep. So I got in the elevator. I came out of the elevator. And there were all these armed RCMP officers ransacking the entire floor of offices. And of course, as we know, there was some dirty business that that producer was sent to prison for. And the RCMP at the FBI level, what we would have in the States at the FBI, was going through every document and piece of paper and everyone's computer um, through the entire building. And it was one of the scariest experiences I've ever had. They were swarming the place. There were so many of them. Uh, and I remember everyone would look in my office. And of course, I had about 5,000 playbills from shows I've seen. Mm -hmm. And I had pictures and resumes of every actor in New York hard copy. There was more paper in my office or the equivalent of all the paper in the rest of the building. And so everyone who would come in would look around and go, nope, and walk back out. Or they'd come in and they'd say, I ain't doing this room. And they'd walk <laughs> back out. And then finally, this big galoof of a man in his uniform comes in and he goes, all right, I drew the short straw. And he opened the file cabinet and he said, what's in here? And I said, those are pictures and resumes of every major actor in New York. And he shook his head because the files were packed so tightly. <laughs> And then he closed it and he opened. These were huge drawers. These weren't small file cabinets. These were the big giant file cabinets with the drawers that opened sideways in the wall, you know? And he opened another drawer and he said, what's this? I said, same. And he pointed to the other drawers up and down the wall and said, all the same. And I said, yep. And he turned around and saw a wall of magazine files filled with playbills. And he said, what is this? And I said, these are all playbills from every show I've seen over the last 30 years. And I go to theater five to 10 times a week. And he shook his head. And when they completed a room, they had this like caution sticker that they stuck on the door to say it was done. And he just shook his head, took the sticker, slammed it on my door and said, I'm not doing this room. <laughs> I said, well, the criminals should have hidden all the side letters in my office because obviously casting. that would yes. be the only safe place in the building. <laughs> Always casting. <laughs> yeah, right. Wild that you were actually there for that when that all went down though that you were that you saw it all happening that's wild. live and in person and yeah. it was just just an incredible like like the 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 most toxic evil of corporate america well yes. i guess it was technically canada right but but it was incorporated in america so, so the most toxic evil of the, of the corporate heartless greed yes. meets the most sensitive vulnerability of the most beautiful artists, dancers, singers, performers uh, in, in, you know, as Brene Brown says, in, in your vulnerability, there lies your greatest strength. Right. You know, so, so seeing these people do their work in a way that allows for their full vulnerability and therefore their full command of an audience and, and to be willing to put that out there so many times every day as actors and dancers and singers do right. met with these Men with machine guns respond right. to a kind a of con man, a con man, you know, a con, He's a con, con man, you know, wow. And, and you think fool me once, fool me twice, but then we all it, it, crazy that he's right back, right back where he started. Anyway, I'm sorry, Rob, you're going to say something. No, no, no. I was just going to ask you, like, Arnold, how do you rebuild after that? 
Yeah. Um, especially in terms of trust and, and, and going with future collaborators. Yeah, I, I um, as a friend of mine often says to me, God is bigger than all of this. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm pretty good at what I do. And I, I say that modestly because I, I, um, I, I have gotten I've had the privilege of doing it with such great people. Uh, I mean, you know, when you're on the phone with Hal Prince and he says, uh, um, uh, you, you called me about uh, replacing uh, Julie on the tour. You had an idea. I said, yes, Hal. Uh, Debbie DeCoudre, who's currently playing the understudy, is really qualified to do the role. She's just phenomenal in it. And I, I would really like you to audition her if we could get her to you. And he said, you don't need to get her to me, Arnold. I trust you. Hire her. You know, when you have that with, with I'll, I'll do a little visual because I keep this on my desk. Oh, when, my God. Uh, oh. You, it's a picture of Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim. Oh, folks. look how cute. Look. Oh, I love it. Old fashioned black and white photograph that I just have on my desk. Sometimes I put it on my computer screen. I go, it's my screensaver. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when you have that, um, uh, uh, it's a, um, yeah, th there's another one behind me, actually. I have a, a few altars to my favorites in here. Uh, um, uh, this is from uh, the Hal Prince exhibit they did at Lincoln Center just pre-pandemic. Oh, look at that. Um, and what they did was they had a screen with the titles of all his shows, like, coming through yes, in the center yes. screen. And then the names of everyone he collaborated with around the screen at the entrance to the exhibit. And yeah. um, uh, Here's your my name. name was Bold you. And Center and, like, right under oh. Hal. And I was so honored by that that I took pictures and framed it and love uh, it and 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 then the pandemic hit well that was up so two years later uh, a friend of mine came to new york with her uh, actually it was my partner's friend came to new york with her kids and they were teenagers and uh we went to the library because they needed to use the restroom and we were out and about seeing new york and showing them new york and um, uh the, the library gallery hadn't reopened so that was still there. Oh. And um, and after they came from using the restroom, these two teenage girls, I was like, oh, it's still up. And uh, my partner said, you know, oh, great. Come look at this. And they pointed because it was right in the center in bold. And they said, you see that name? And these girls thought I was the coolest person yes. in the entire world. My name was in the library. <laughs> you are the coolest person. Yes. <laughs> yeah well except for another few million but thank you <laughs> no, no. so in our in our last few moments together what i would what i would love to ask you arnold and and kevin please weigh in so kevin and i are both educators and i know kevin one of your primary focuses is is teaching the art of auditioning mm -hmm. so yes, i'm curious kevin are there any uh questions that your students ask you or any misconceptions that you hear from students that maybe this would be a nice time for Arnold to dispel or Arnold, same question for you, which is because you also are teaching a lot. Are there any misconceptions that artists have either about casting the casting process or casting directors? So I'll Lots. let you two have a dialogue and, and, and <laughs> for no, a little and, bit. No, and things that actors could do that, you know, actors yes. often get, they often get in their own way. I mean, obviously that's what I often find. And, and what's, what's the advice? Cause it's nice to hear, 
you know, as this as teachers, but like, it's nice to hear the same thing, but said different ways. And so I'm just curious if you might, in addition to what Rob just asked, share some of the, the foibles that you often see actors make, especially newer actors in the business that haven't learned to fake it as well <laughs> as the other right. ones, because there's an element of faking it. Um, but you know, some, some of the things that you see over and over again, in addition to what Rob, what Rob said. Mm. Yeah, I can always spot. Not faking to put you it. on yeah, the spot. I've been, doing, I've been doing this a long time. I can yeah. always spot faking it. And uh, it's, it's evolved too. We, I recognize that you know the audition process. Some of the basics are the same, but you know it, the system has evolved. You know, um, and that's that's less what I'm interested in. More about like how to act. What can actors do that might help themselves? Yeah, great question. Thank you. And I, I, uh, uh, that's a whole other podcast. But I. Right. Um, uh, uh, to try to just to offer some succinct points. Uh, first of all, I, I have a unique perspective because I, I love that you guys teach. And, uh, you know, Sondheim said teaching was the sacred profession. And if he had not been a lyricist, he would have been a teacher. And so uh, I want to clarify, first of all, I'm a very active full-time casting director working with the staff and casting shows constantly. We have three yep. major projects we're juggling right now. So my teaching is uh, my class at NYU is called Preparing for the Profession. And a lot of the workshops I've done with universities and with actors actors and, and theaters all over the country, all over the world, really, uh, have been along that line of stepping in from my role as a professional casting director to offer teaching that is really a time-honored tradition in our industry. Like, you know, in, in um, I think the movie is Stage Beauty with Billy Crudup and uh, uh, Claire Danes, I think, where you're learning about the troops of actors and how they roamed in the early 1900s and how if you wanted to be an actor, you went an apprentice and sewed the costumes for the Crap. starring actors to learn from them doing it. So I, I think there's one perspective that's like, oh, yeah, the actors who can't make it, you know, those who can't do what is it? Those who can do those who can't teach. Right. And right. now yeah, we yeah. have a bunch of like actors who haven't made it who are teaching bad habits to young actors etc and the education system is flawed i don't think it's flawed i think it's it's a time-honored tradition in our industry that the people who immerse themselves in this process uh, are the people who we want to learn from to help us bridge from what we understand conceptually to actually doing it in a way that brings out our best self because every actor is unique and has a different life experience and story to tell. Uh, so in terms of what I would offer, uh, uh, mistakes I see that actors uh, uh, make a lot, uh, lack of preparation, it's amazing. I, I remember being in an audition a, a couple of years ago with Michael Greif and, um, you know, there was a new show with Michael Greif and there were a lot of major people coming in. And then there was a uh, uh, a spot that opened up because somebody fell out a, a day before. And I thought, well, here's this girl. I liked her in her showcase. She's talented. Let me give her a chance. There's space in the schedule. Let me give her the opportunity. And she came in. Uh, actually, you know what? I, 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 I misspoke there. That's not correct. I, it wasn't the day before. It was actually several days before uh, because that was a big element of it is she had the material for I think like four days and I just thought you know I I, I think I'm going to give it to this you know newcomer to think of her a shot and she's got plenty of time with the material she's got a good voice she'll be able to you know knock it out of the park with this much prep time and when she came in the room 
she looked like she had not looked at the material. She had printed it out and she was unfolding it and looking at the pages like she had never seen it before and didn't even know where to start or which role she was auditioning for. And she read it like she was reading it out loud for the first time. And Michael just leaned back in his chair, looked over at me and said, a little prep. How about a little prep? Just a little prep, just a little bit. And it was like, you're right. Yeah, they, they you know, actors sometimes uh, have the misconception of, well, I'll just go in and read this cold. And if they like me, they'll work with me. And no, you got to bring to the table. Nobody's going to respond to anything unless you bring something to respond to. And uh, my friend, Michael Mastro, who works on Broadway constantly, he's a pretty well-known actor, certainly among casting directors, everybody knows him. Um, and uh, immensely talented and marvelous man, uh, basically goes from show to show to show. And I had him in my class once as part of a panel to speak to the, the group and to talk about his experience auditioning. And he said, this last, uh, this show that I'm doing now, uh, uh, the audition prep I did on that was probably about uh, 35 hours. And that's average for me. Uh, you know, I do, I do 30 to 40 hours prep on any material I'm given when I'm auditioning for any major project. And I thought that was so key because Sometimes actors will come to me and they're all frustrated and they say, you know, oh, I, I blew an audition today. I'm so mad. I really wanted that job. I, I just I just hate it that it didn't go well. And I really worked hard. And I'll say, you worked hard. How hard did you work? And they'll say, no, no, Arnold, I really worked on this one. I mean, I'm telling you, I put in hours. I, every second I had, I, I was working on this material. And I said, okay, but if you add up all those seconds, what would you say it comes to? An hour, 10 hours, 20 hours, five hours, two hours, like how much time total? And they'll say, no, a lot. I mean, I've worked a lot on that. I, I'm telling you, I put in at least like two, two and a half hours on this. And I'll smile and I'll say, yeah. Okay, my friend Michael Mastro puts in 35 to 40 hours on everything he does. And he books every job he goes out for. Yeah. So if you're interested in getting in the realm of being a player here, you need to bring more to the table. Love that. Damn, and then, great advice. Ar Arnold, yeah. last question for you which is what is it that you know now that you wished you had known when you first started out in this profession? Hmm. You know, that's a tricky question for me because I'm, I'm such a student of life and I yes. have such an appetite and it's, I mean, such an appetite for learning. I want to learn everything. I mean, during yes. the pandemic, I set up Grateful, Ready, Open, Willing, and I was doing things technologically that are way beyond my capability and sometimes failing miserably. It'd be like, okay, I'm I'm on my phone and I think you can see my nose, but I can't get my computer to work. Yes, but, totally. but we're here with yes. these actors to talk about, you know, and, and just... And learning it, you know, and I took a website class to to update my website, which I, I'm guessing you've been to because you know my background and I'm guessing it's great. Know. It was a good because I've been meaning to do that. It's a fantastic you website. So kind. It's HTML, which is a technology not even used anymore. It's so archaic. But uh, and my brother in law is an IT person now retired who's when, when he built that for me, it, as one young actor said to me you need help with your website. It looks like it's from the last century. And I said, well, it is from the last century, as a matter of fact. Uh, but, but, you know, it was pretty cutting edge then. But, you know, I thought, let me take a class and learn how to build a website so that I can 
upgrade my online image if people can't see past the technology to all the shows I've done. And I, I, I learned a lot. And I have half a website at this point because then we got busy again. Then suddenly there were Zoom readings and online things. And I didn't have enough time or interest to continue in that aspect of it. Um, I, I do hope I'll get it done at some point, maybe in the next six months. But but the thing is, it's about the learning of it. It's not about the result. It's about I now know things when I go to people's websites and when I do things and when I get tickets for things. I know things about how things work in an area I never knew before. And uh, that's that's the thing that's so essential is to just keep learning. And, uh, you know, actors are like that, too. You know, they come into the audition room and they kind of got this. They know it. They've played this role before or they've done something like it or, oh, they're great auditioners or whatever. And when you don't have that essential judgment free beginner's mindset, it the work is so much less fulfilling, creative, rewarding. It's It's got to be judgment-free. You have to allow to say, okay, you know, yeah, I am not a technology person. Who cares? I'm a human being. I have a mind. I have a heart. I can learn. Let me try learning this and see what it's like. And guess what? Oh, big surprise. It's imperfect. And the same thing with the actors. You know, if you come in in that beginner's mindset of, I have never read these lines or sung this song or danced this dance or whatever in front of these people in this way, what, what if I were completely open to everything that, that is possible here and with a beginner's mindset, just learned about it by doing it and, and showed up in a way that was completely prepared that, that actually gave that opportunity. Wow. That works really well. And so I'm I'm so like that, that when you say that, the stuff I wish I knew, the answer to that question is, I haven't learned it yet. <laughs> love that. That I love that is a great answer. Arnold, I cannot tell you how much we appreciate you spending your your time with us today. Uh, mm -hmm. your students are very lucky to have you. And all the actors in New York who've had the pleasure of meeting you are even even more lucky because it's nice to know there's someone in their corner as passionate oh. as you are. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, maybe one day, Kevin, you and I can audit Arnold's class. We can, we can, <laughs> we can look like millennials and sneak in. Talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Yay. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.